So while you're turning with me to Acts chapter, we see that Paul left Berea, the same Jews that had persecuted him at Thessalonica came to Berea. Remember, the Berean Jews were more noble than the Thessalonica Jews because they studied the scriptures daily. Many of the Jews at Berea, as well as many God-fearing men and women, put their faith in Jesus Christ as Messiah. God was doing a great work. A church was established at Berea. But the Jews from Thessalonica came and tried to stir up a mob again, just like they had at Thessalonica. They began to try to come up with some new charges to attack Paul and persecute him. And so the brethren thought that it was wise for Paul to leave. And so Silas and Timothy stay there at Berea and they're continuing to help the church. And a group of the believers from Berea join Paul and they escort him all the way to Athens, which is about a a 200 mile journey. Now, when Paul arrives in Athens, Athens at this time was already past its prime, but it was still one of the world centers of art, of literature, of culture, philosophy, architecture, and religion. It was stated by an ancient poet that it was actually easier to find a god than a human in Athens because of all the idolatrous statues. Paul was, I'm sure, excited to visit this great city of which he'd heard so much, but yet as he toured the city, he became greatly provoked. Let me ask you this question this morning and before we get into our text. What provokes you? You're thinking maybe with me, 1 Corinthians 13, I thought the Bible says that love is not easily provoked. Well, that is a personal provocation when people do things against us. Are we quickly provoked because our feelings have been hurt, because our rights have been trampled, because we have somehow been offended or sinned against All right, that's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But here we see, the Bible says that Paul's spirit was stirred within him. What causes you to get really upset? You say, well, I don't like to answer that because Christians really aren't supposed to get upset, right? Wrong. Look with me in verse 16 of Acts chapter 17, verse 16. The Bible says, now while Paul waited for them at Athens, he's waiting for Silas and Timothy... His spirit was stirred in him. That word stirred means to be provoked, troubled, distressed, upset, borderline angry. He was distressed about something. What was it? Look in verse 16. When he saw the city was wholly given to idolatry. So what do we learn from this passage this morning? We'll be looking at verses 16 to 21. First thing I want you to see is this morning is that we must be jealous for God's glory. The Bible tells us in Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6, as we look at the Ten Commandments, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Listen to this, for I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Folks, only the triune God deserves to be worshipped. He is the only truth. He is the only source of eternal life. We who are saved should be grieved when we look around in our country even just in our own neighborhoods, in our own cities, and see that there are so many people that don't know Jesus Christ. 
They're living idolatrous lives. You know the first and great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your might. And if we love God the way he commands us to, then we should be protective of his glory and want others to know him. But do we have idolatry in our country today? Not, not in the sense of statues where people leave offerings and burn incense in front of them, right? But if we believe, and I believe this is true, that idolatry, in principle, idolatry is putting anything before God, anything higher in God, in importance or trust, then we should see that our culture is rampant with idolatry. What are some of the things people in our culture worship today? How about nature? Environmentalists can take that on as their religion. Sports, hobbies, recreation, career, money, or relationships. I don't think we realize how idolatrous of a nation we have become, but we live in a country where people idolize rock stars, movie stars, sports stars, and politicians. Worship them. And if I were to name some of them and a couple things about them, there might even be some Christians in here who get a little stirred up because I've just touched a very sensitive spot in your heart of an affection for somebody that you really love or admire. And my warning to you is, Christian, God said, I should have no other gods before me. God says, I, the Lord, the God, am a jealous God. Are we guilty of idolatry? We should repent and make sure that in our own lives, Jesus Christ is indeed King of kings and Lord of lords, and that everything in our lives is lived within the context of our daily lives of worship for him. Second of all, though, we must channel this passion for God's glory into gospel ministry. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue. This is Paul. He disputes or he dialogues. He begins these conversations. Remember, he did this at Thessalonica. He does this again at Berea. This is his pattern. He goes to the synagogue. Why? Because he himself was a Jew. He knew he would have an open door. He already understood the culture, the mindset. He knew the religious thinking of the Jews. Uh, because he would have been considered a rabbi, he would have been invited as a guest to stand up and read scripture portions and then comment on that. And so he would go and he would, and he would speak with the Jews. And then, of course, there were always uh, Gentile God-fearers who were turning from being polytheistic to monotheistic. Uh, they were beginning to understand that there's only one true God. And yet they were not full-blown Jewish proselytes. And certainly they had not uh, put faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Yet Paul preaches Christ as Messiah in the synagogues. He reasons with them from the scriptures. He opens the scriptures. He dialogues. He asks questions. He listens. And he shares the gospel. What a great pattern that is for us as we connect with unbelievers in our community. Working, having conversations and dialogues and asking questions and listening and sharing the scripture. And letting the Holy Spirit take the word of God and work conviction and shine the light of truth. The Bible says that the entrance of thy word giveth light. We need to be men and women of the word. We must channel our passion for God's glory in the gospel ministry. This stirring of verse 16 should motivate us to overcome the intimidations which lead to inactivity. What is it that discourages you from sharing the gospel? 
Paul was in this impressive city at Athens. Man, there were professional philosophers. There were artists. There were, there were, there were uh, all these different experts and all these skilled people, all these intelligent people. There was a great university at Athens. It was a big place. It was an impressive place. But as Paul walks through the city and he sees that the whole city is given over to idolatry, he is stirred with a passion for the glory of God and a desire for people to know the one true God. And it moves him then to overcome any intimidation he might have about the city and people that are so far above him in intelligence and, and skill and, and ability. If he goes to the synagogue, he doesn't even wait. Usually he would wait for whoever he had left behind in the previous city to join up with him and then together as a team. But he's so stirred in his spirit that if he goes to the synagogue right away, he begins to reason with those in the synagogue. And then the Bible says he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, that would be the Gentiles, and in the market daily with them that met him. That was a little different. Usually that's where he would start and he would stay for several weeks just in the synagogue. And when, if mainly the majority of the Jews had rejected him, or even if many of the Jews had accepted Christ as Savior, but then some began to persecute Paul, uh, then he would leave the synagogue and then he'd begin to reach out more to the Gentiles. And, but not, that's not the case here. Here, he's, yes, he's going to the synagogue, but then daily he goes to the marketplace. The marketplace there was, was more than just where you would buy fresh vegetables and produce, meat, whatever, you know, buy cloth or whatever you needed, sandals. It was a place where you would have these public debates and discussions. It was kind of like, you know, uh, like we have like coffee shops where people go into coffee shops and they'll, and they'll go into the coffee shop and they'll sit and they'll talk and they'll... Uh, banter back and forth and that sort of a thing. And that's what was happening here. And so he goes to the marketplace and he begins to share. He didn't wait for the team to come before he started dialoguing, adding to the strategy, reaching out to those just in that public community, people that would come to the marketplace that would be interested. These ongoing gospel conversations then attracted professional philosophers from two main schools of philosophical thought. And Paul began to share the gospel of Christ with them. Look at verse 18. Then certain philosophers, he's talking about professional philosophers here, okay? The Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him. And some said, what will this babbler say? And some, he seemed to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. The Epicureans believed that basically the soul was a material and it was annihilated at death. Uh, they thought that pleasure was the chief good and then tranquility. So that's what they were after. And their whole philosophy was formed around pleasure and tranquility and what brought um, temporal fulfillment. Because they believed uh, you only get this life and your soul is annihilated at death when your body dies. So you might as well get all you can while you can. And so that was their philosophy. And then the Stoics believed that the soul was either absorbed into nature which they said was God, they were pantheistic in their thinking, or it burned up. They were almost fatalistic, emphasizing self-discipline, endurance, and reason. So you have two almost opposing schools of thought here, and yet it's interesting that though these schools, these are the two mainstream thoughts of philosophy in Athens during this time, that both of these thoughts, mainstream thoughts, actually come together and it kind of is, you know, the enemy, of, or my, the, the enemy of my friend is my enemy kind of idea. I don't know if I'm getting that right or not. 
But because, well, think of the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead and angels and all of that and miracles. The Sadducees believe in that? No. And yet what happened when it came to Christ? Man, they teamed up together, though they had been forbidden enemies, right? Um, and it's the same thing here. These would two been two opposing schools of thought, competing for people's attention and belief. And yet when Paul comes preaching Christ, both of them gather together to turn towards Paul. Now, it's interesting because some of them, and we'll see this, some of them were curious to hear more. And Luke actually gives a comment as to why. But some of them are trying to draw away the attention and they're trying to discredit Paul. So that brings me to my third point, and that is this. We must stay focused on Jesus. That's what Paul did. The Bible says in verse 18, that these philosophers said, what will this babbler say? The word babblers, it's translated there, uh, literally is translated seed picker. And it's the idea of birds that just randomly pick seeds, right? And then they would scatter those seeds randomly in their droppings. And so it kind of came to be a euphemistic picture of somebody that would gather a scrap of philosophy here, an idea here, and something there. You would borrow thoughts from everybody else. You kind of roll them up into this ball of some sort of pseudo-philosophy. And then you could go around trying to impress people that you were a philosopher who'd come up with your whole philosophy all on your own. And really all you were was plagiarizing from a bunch of different people and kind of put together your own Frankenstein from the body parts of many different philosophies and ideas and religions. And so that's what they said, the seed picker. This is kind of a second-hand dealer of used ideas and thoughts. It was very condescending. And yet, you know what? Imagine how, much, how intimidating it must have been for Paul to dialogue with professional philosophers of great intellect. What must it felt like for Paul when they insulted him? They're saying, you know what? Paul's trying to appear a scholar. He's trying to look like he's smarter than what he really is. Have you ever had someone make you feel that way when you've talked about spiritual things? Paul did. And you know, I find encouragement from the scripture that even though the apostle Paul, being led of the spirit and being an ordained apostle of Christ, given divine revelation, through the Holy Spirit to preach and to write. And we have scripture that Paul wrote that is eternal scripture from the very mouth of God. Yet Paul, and I believe this is here for us to encourage us that even though these professional philosophers, some of them mocked him and tried to discredit him, he kept preaching Christ. The Bible says, and he seemeth to be, others said he seemeth to be a center forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. See, the Athenians had deified certain virtues like modesty and piety. So when Paul talked about Jesus and the resurrection, they thought he was talking about Jesus as a God and then resurrection as a God. Okay? And so like, what strange gods is, is Paul promoting here? Okay? Um, but Paul kept preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You know, when people ask us intimidating questions, how can we handle that? I think we can handle it by, by saying things like this. You know what? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but what do you think about Jesus? Or have you heard of John three sixteen? Can I share that with you? You know, or even, well, do you think that Jesus died on a cross for your sins? 
Because folks, while we are not trying to ignore people's sincere questions, often people will make statements or ask questions merely to try to throw us off the track because they're going to be faced with truth and it's very convicting. Now when they have, have you ever, I mean, this is the famous one and I've actually had this asked to me, okay, when I'm witnessing to somebody. Well, if God created everything and if God formed Adam of the dust of the ground, did Adam have a belly button? I was asked that question. What's that got to do with the gospel? Absolutely nothing. What is it? A distracting question. But you know what I would say to them? I would say, if you would let me share with you Christ, because that's my main objective here, I'll be glad to go back and maybe talk, that, talk with you about that later. And most of the time, once we got focused on Christ, that question never came up again. But I've had other questions that have been asked, sincerely asked, and it is legitimate to stop and answer some of those questions because Christ is the central theme of the scriptures. So you answer that legitimate spiritual question and you segue it back to Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection. And that's exactly what Paul is doing. He didn't allow these professional, condescending philosophers who were debating with him to intimidate him. He stayed focused on sharing Jesus Christ. And then number four, we need to embrace gospel opportunities. Look if you were to verses 19 to 21. And they took him and brought him unto the Oropagus, saying, May we know this new doctrine whereof thou spakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know therefore what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Kind of like, hey, what's the news? Have you ever stopped new? It's part of news. But that's kind of where this came from. In other words, that which was new is old hat. It's kind of like CNN junkies or Fox News junkies. All right? Yeah, but what happens? What's happened in the last 15 minutes? I know I heard the news 15 minutes ago, but what happened? What just happened in the last 15 minutes? What's the latest, you know? And all through the day, man, we're checking the news. We're checking the news, you know, and all these little, you know, these timelines of things and all of that. All the time. I'm not talking about just one political race or something like that, or we're following some storm and we're concerned because there's relatives in some part of the country where that storm may be coming through. I'm not talking about that where it's like one event. I'm talking about daily. It's, it's a way of thinking. And that's what the Athenians were. They always wanted to know what is new. What's the next new thing? By the way, that's why churches like Berean Baptist Church don't appeal to a lot of people because we preach the Word of God. And the Word of God is forever settled in heaven. And as Solomon said, there is no new thing under the sun. There's no new truth. All truth is eternal truth. It comes from God. Now, are we still discovering that truth in the scriptures? Yeah, because we're finite human beings and we are constantly learning. And God is teaching us and forming us and molding us. But you're not going to hear, never before preached, never before discovered, not here at Marine. You know why? Because we're preaching the word of God. And it is unchanging. But the Athenians wanted to hear this new thing. And you know what? Because these Athenians were so curious, well, what's this new thing? And by the way, the Areopagus was the, the Greek name for Mars Hill. So a lot of times you hear Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. He may or may not have actually been on the physical place of Mars Hill. Now, it used to be that this, this body, uh, it was kind of a ruling body, and they made decisions, um, criminal decisions, even capital punishment decisions like murders and stuff and sentencing murderers. But then it became, became uh, broader than that, and it became, 
it became an arbiter of philosophy and religion as well as legal matters. Okay, And so it came to be kind of, again, another reference. So they may have not met at the physical location of Mars Hill, but when it says it brought them before the Oropagus, it means they brought them before the assembly that would have met. Okay, That's what it's talking about. And I believe that, that Luke here is led of the Holy Spirit to, to be more general in this statement rather than to specifically say they were actually on the physical hill, Mars Hill. They may have been, minor point, but just so you know, it didn't mean they actually had to be on Mars Hill. Paul is without his team. He is in a new place. He is facing not only professional philosophers, but all the Athenians are curious to hear these new things. So there's a ton of people. I mean, remember, that the, and the Greek tense, when we're talking about how Paul would meet daily in the marketplace, he was having ongoing conversations daily with them. This is taking place over a series of days or probably even weeks. And even when he's talking with the philosophers, it wasn't just a one-time debate that he had with these philosophers and with the other people that were there to ask questions. These were ongoing debates, ongoing conversations that kept on going. It wasn't just a one-time thing. And now finally it gets to this point where they're like, can we please hear, hear it out? Because they're getting, you know, they're, they're getting some, but they're like, let's give Paul the floor. Let's ask him and let's look at this and let's see if this is something legitimate that we should all consider. More out of just curiosity than anything else. But you know, we ought to take advantage and embrace gospel opportunities. So he goes through this, and next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at this message on Mars Hill, as it's commonly known. And you'll see that Paul takes full advantage of this gospel opportunity. Um, Reggie White. Anybody of you remember Reggie White? He was, had a nickname, the Minister of Defense. He played uh, most of his career, he played 15 seasons, was probably the most decorated NFL defensive player, or at least one of the most decorated defensive players in the NFL ever, uh, played for the Green Bay Packers. And the reason he was known as the minister of defense was because he was so outspoken in his gospel witness. As a matter of fact, when he ended his NFL professional career, he actually became an ordained preacher. Now, I'm not... I am not condoning everything he preached or all his doctrine because I have not researched it enough to know. But I do know that he was a believer who preached and proclaimed the gospel and shared it and had a heart to see other people saved. He used, he used professional football as a platform. As a matter of fact, whenever he would sign his jersey, he would sign it, Reggie White, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. Because he wanted people to be directed towards God. And he wanted to plant a seed of the gospel in people's hearts and minds. Well, I have a pastor friend who used to be up in Wisconsin. He's now a pastor in North Carolina. But when he was up in Wisconsin, he was at Green Bay, and he was going to fly to a conference or something. He's a pastor friend of mine. And um, he's in this Green Bay airport. Now, if you've ever been to Green Bay airport, you know it's not a very big airport. And while he is there, Reggie White is there. And so he gets to talking with Reggie White. And as they're talking about where they're going and what they're doing, Reggie White says, hey, wait a minute, you're a pastor, aren't you? And my friend Bill says, yeah, I'm a pastor. And he goes, hang on a second, I'll be right back. So he goes and he gets his family and he brings them back to my friend Bill. And he says, hey, kids, this man's a pastor. This is a real hero. This is somebody you should look up to because he preaches the gospel and he builds disciples for Jesus. And folks, he used what he had. 
He embraced gospel opportunities. And he used football as one of the vehicle, his vehicles for sharing the gospel. So I want to come to the time of invitation now. And I just have some questions as we have our invitation time. So here's what's going to happen in our invitation. In just a moment, we'll have a pianist come and she'll play a hymn of invitation. And uh, we're just going to stay uh, in our seats, heads bowed. And I want you to think through and pray through these questions if you are a born-again believer. If you say, Pastor Todd, I'm not sure if I were to die where my soul would go then my invitation to you is this. After we dismiss our service, I'll be back at the connection point. Would you please come back to me? Um, yes, I'll be greeting visitors. Maybe you're a guest with us today. Maybe you're not. Maybe you've gone to this church for a long time. It doesn't matter. Come back to me at the connection point, and, I'll, and I will sit aside in the connection point with you. I will sit down with the Word of God, and I will show you the way of salvation. Or if you are here today because a friend invited you and you know that that friend would be able to share with you the way of salvation from the scriptures, then I would encourage you to go to that person and get in one of our little classrooms somewhere, uh, a side where it's quiet, and let them take the word of God and show you how you can call on Jesus Christ and have the gift of eternal life, how you can be translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let's bow our heads as our pianist comes. I've got these five questions for you to consider this morning. I don't expect you to remember or pray through all of them. But whichever ones the Holy Spirit just highlights in your mind, would you just stop and focus on that one or two questions and just do business with God? Now, here's what I'm wanting you to do. These are asked as questions. They're analytical questions. So would you cooperate with the Holy Spirit? And allow the Holy Spirit to analyze in your heart and mind these things this morning. First, how deeply, Christian, are you stirred by our culture's rebellion against God? Second, is there anything in your life that has become an idol? Third, how deeply are you concerned for people to hear the gospel? Four, what are you personally doing to proclaim and promote the gospel? And then along with that, question number five, what can you use as a vehicle for sharing the gospel? What are your gospel opportunities? As our pianist begins to play, would you consider these themes? Would you pray through them? <clears throat> 